Welcome to 50 Years Later, Episode 4 of Taking on the Devil, a podcast celebrating 50 years of The Exorcist. I'm Gina Brandolino, a lecturer of English literature at the University of Michigan. My partner in this podcast exploring the dark corners of The Exorcist is Gabrielle Thomas, assistant professor in early Christianity and Anglican studies at Candler School of Theology at Emory University, and an ordained priest in the Church of England. This final episode considers the legacy of The Exorcist, a story that has had incredible cultural reach and influence. One reason why might be that it gave us a very literal depiction of evil, the devil himself, and in so doing, allowed us to think about him in ways we hadn't before. What conjures him is the story that asks us to consider him a very real antagonist acting against us, ultimately a story about faith or horror. In matters of the devil, Can the two ever be separated? Keep listening to learn. For this last episode, we wanted to think a little bit about sort of the the larger stakes of this story, the ways this story has made us change our thinking about the devil and about evil, and the ways it's sort of stayed in our bones culturally for all of these years, because it has. This, this has been a book um, and a movie with incredible staying power. So one thing that this, that this story does is that it shows us a very literal version of evil in the devil that it gives us, um, that possesses Reagan. Evil is not abstract in this book. Evil, evil is, a, is a force that you have to battle very particularly. It suggests, in short, that the devil is real. So, Gabby, if the devil is real, where is he? What is he? How can we conceive of him as more than an abstract entity? So I think this is a really important question at the moment, because what has been going on, certainly in Christian academic theology, um, for the last 20 years or so, is that, first of all, you saw a big step away from any devil language or any hostile powers language, anything that might point to an evil that's identifiable in any way. But for the last, and it probably is only for the last 20 years or so, there's been a slightly different shift in a different direction. Um, It began, at least as far as I can see, in a very obvious way with a theologian called Robert Jensen, He wrote, actually, this is 40 years now. I thought it was 20. I'm showing my age. Um, He wrote an essay called Evil as Person. And what he was trying to do was was sort of push back against the idea that we don't need the devil in Christian theology anymore. And he's talking very theoretically. He's not really addressing practical concerns in that essay. But what he wants to do is say, if we can conceive of evil and we don't want to conceive of it abstractly can we talk about it as person and then if we are are we going to talk about it as the person of the devil and 
that's sort of one approach that's been going on. And then there's another approach where people are still a little bit uncomfortable with the devil as sort of the name devil um, for all different reasons. I mean, it's been used in, to abuse people. I mean, it, it, there's lots of very good reasons why people are uncomfortable, but they still want to give some idea of there's something else. And those theologians are talking about a third agent. So if you think of the drama of salvation, you've got God, you've got the human being, and then you've got the devil who's the third agent. And I think in a sense, by referring to the third agent, it's a slightly more palatable expression. For those that would just laugh at the idea of a devil, it it sounds possibly a little less vivid, those kinds of things. But um, but it's but it's sort of harking along similar lines. So you've got this idea of a third agency and that idea of a person. And I think where I've been sort of playing around with both those ideas and then thinking on um, is thinking back to the Greek fathers that I work with a lot of the time. Um, they live in the fourth century. And um, there's one that is called Gregory of Nyssa. And Um, He writes a series of homilies based on the Lord's Prayer. And they're absolutely fantastic. I mean, I love them so much. They're fantastic homilies. Um, And in these, um, he's got one where he basically takes on the idea of uh, deliver us from evil. And instead of deliver us from evil, he prays deliver us from the evil one. And then begins to parse out what that might mean. Um, And he decides that he thinks it means temptation because it comes just after make sure that we don't have any temptation. And then um, so he's sort of playing around with that. But in those series of prayers, he talks about really how we need to be very careful. um, And obviously he's talking to a bunch of Christians, how we need to be very careful as Christians that we don't take on what he describes as the morphe, which is the form, and the prosopon of the devil. And the prosopon could be translated in a number of ways. And this is the bit that I find really interesting because um, they use it and Gregory himself uses it to describe um, the person of Christ, the person of the Holy Spirit when they're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, so you've got it translated as and used in one way, but then also it's used to talk about the masks that people wore in the theatre, so the masks that actors wore. And it's got this very long history. It's a really fascinating term. It starts out early on as a funeral mask. And the idea is that you look at this mask um, in the big procession, especially in um, some important Roman person that had died, a senator or something. And then you're reminded, the mask is particularly constructed so that you're reminded of all the good that this particular person has done. And then what that means is you will become like, you will do the same things, you will emulate. And so it's got all these kinds of different sort of connotations and meanings going on with it that he knows about when he's saying you need to be really careful if you're going to think about taking on this form and prosopon of the devil. And so I've been playing around with that and thinking, well, you could translate that as persona. Um, It's not what he was saying, and I'm not trying to say it's what he was saying. It's what I'm saying. It's almost that sort of, well, we never quite know who this thing is or or what this thing is because we see so much presented in different ways. If if we think about art, we've got millions of different pictures of the devil. We've got, you know, late, very late on, we've got the idea of the red devil with the horns. Early on, there's virtually no pictures at all. 
then you've got sort of blue being sort of the four sort of I think it's the sixth century that like blue devil because that's relating to the sea and all the chaos monsters in the sea and that kind of thing but we haven't really got one consistent throughout history one consistent image of who this is and what he looks like and so I think one helpful way if we want to think about this other entity this other thing is thinking about it as not person because I think that attributes too much that we might think we know. I think just describing it as a third agent doesn't give quite enough of an image. But what I like about persona is the sense that, well, yeah, this is a thing, but we're never quite sure if this thing is the mask or is it wearing a mask or is it the mask? Yeah, we never really quite, we never really quite know is, is sort of where I, mostly I want to keep it as vague as possible because I'm not sure. And I'm not sure it's possible to be sure. And I think there's a danger sometimes with too much certainty of anything. Mm. Um, and so I, I particularly wanted to keep it sort of as open-ended as possible because people are going to think about persona in different ways. But usually it's got the idea that you're never seeing the whole picture. And this really squares with Marin's experience with this ancient enemy, right? Whose face he ha- he says he's, he's never seen, it's right? It's true. So and I- interestingly, what's fascinating to me, though, Gina, is I hadn't read this book yeah. when I was beginning to play around with these ideas. I'd read 4th century Christian <laughs> theologians. And so that, I think, was probably why that resonated with me so much, because I thought, what? Who knew? (laughs) That's what I'm writing an academic (laughs) theological essay about. And here you have it in what's on the front says the most terrifying novel ever written. And I was just like, this is really fascinating that clearly this idea resonates. um, And although obviously that's not his description exactly, um, it is pretty close. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, it's interesting, like, so so you're, you're sort of spanning, you know, these sort of early uh, theologians, you know, to this mo- this modern novel. You're also spanning between, you know, the, the sort of the Catholic Church and, and the Church of England. Now, the, the, the right that these briefs perform is, is called the, the right of exorcism. In Church of England, it's called deliverance, right? And it evolved sort of because of this book, right? Well, that what, wasn't didn't sort of originate, but evolved. So this is really fascinating to me. So we have an ex a right of exorcism in the Church of England, but the only people that have access to it are the diocesan bishops, and then those if you are if if the diocese has one, sometimes you'll have what's called a diocesan exorcist, but more more frequently nowadays. Um, you've got someone who's heading up the diocesan deliverance team because with the use the word exorcism very 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 rarely, um, whereas we use the term deliverance very frequently, and they're slightly different ideas um, because exorcism is relating to when someone is absolutely possessed and it's a very clear and specific situation and only um, a few designated people in the Church of England are allowed to deal with it. But what's interesting is deliverance ministry is a lot more common and a lot more widely talked about. And our current practices for that date back from 1975. And these guidelines for ministry were issued. Um, Now, I don't think it's 
uh, coincidence that the classic horror film was issued in 1973. And then even before that, and this, this interested me too, we had a really famous um, exorcism that happened in Yorkshire, um, but it happened before the film. And it basically, someone who was a butcher um, went through, clearly, I'm going to say, an unsuccessful exorcism with an Anglican priest, um, and then went on to murder his wife. And there was, I think, a lot of movement based nationally, but also within the church as a response to these kinds of um, cases and conversations going on. Um, and there was an Archbishop of Canterbury, and they, they change every 10 years or so, and this particular one was called Donald Coggan. And he said that he supported exorcism if it was basically done in a controlled way because he thought that the publicity around that case had forced people to think about the powers of evil. But what was fascinating is a little bit like um, Clarice says, we don't really believe in this anymore. So, you know, no love, we're not going to help you. There was a huge outcry at, at the idea that a bishop might take the devil serious, an archbishop, sorry, might take the devil seriously because that's just not what we, we do anymore. And so you've got this really interesting mix, certainly within Church of England culture, who of people who would say, yes, I think it's something that should be taken seriously. And then also the folks who would be, well, we don't really do that anymore. You might want to try speaking to someone else. And, and we all coexist in, in one church. But um, certainly now there's a huge amount um, of liturgy that's used for deliverance and the way that's termed is it's not necessarily possession but it might be what we call oppression so where there's a sense of well we we there's an uncomfortable spirit we think in our house um someone might be invited in to pray some prayers um in the house um and those prayers are accessible to everybody and they're on the church of england website they're accessible to you and me you know absolutely anybody and then the exorcism right is is kept under very much as it is with the catholic church kept under lock and key because i think for all sorts of reasons really um but primarily because no one wants we want to keep people as safe as possible and i think we wouldn't want it to be used inappropriately yeah it's interesting though like you said that there was this sort of cluster of activity around the same time that the uh, the book came out, the movie came out, and that um, Pope Paul VI was making his statement that we talked about yep. um, in the in the first episode, right? That all of these things are happening at the same time. I know from my my own uh, research um, in the Exorcist um, for teaching that the movie, at least, was released um, in the UK, was eventually banned, and it was banned until 1999. The movie truly shook the world. People in audiences in the United States uh, were believing they were possessed, were fainting, were vomiting, um, you know, were, were uh, they, you know, like, your, like your Yorkshire example, were doing horrible things um, under what they believed was the influence of the movie. So it's clear to me that the, this is a story that affected people. Mm. And it's not surprising to me that either the story would directly affect the way evil is thought about among the people whose job it is to think about evil yeah. um, in the Church of England, or that the ripples would eventually cause them to think about it, right? Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's one testament to the power of this story that it had that effect, right? Yeah. That, it, that it was able to change the way to change the way the Church of England 
um, approached, maybe not directly, but you know, in this ripple, in this ripple fashion, changed the way the Church of England approached uh, deliverance. Yeah, I mean, what I think I find really interesting about all of it is that the one prayer that most Christians know off by heart and pray very regularly is the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, deliver us from evil. It's in some ways shocking that we don't think about it more, that we don't take it on more, that we don't engage with it more, given that it is actually in one of the most basic yeah. prayers that we have accessible to us. Yeah. I mean, in an ad- in an abstracted way, mind you, right? I would what I would prefer um, the evil one from uh, from the sermon that you're talking about was it Gregory's? That's right. Yes, yeah, Gregory's yeah, yeah. sermon. Um, because I feel like one thing that this that this what that this book does is gives us an opportunity to think about the possibilities of facing this kind of not abstract but very concrete encounter yeah. with evil in in the form of the devil. And I, you know, I opened this episode asking you if the devil is real, how how we can think about him. Let me ask a question that's harder to answer, which is what conjures him? Uh, I think it's a question everybody who reads The Exorcist thinks about. Um, how, do, how do we not get into a situation like Marin is in, where when we show up somewhere and yeah. the devil is present, it knows us by name, right? Yeah. I think this is a really difficult question to answer in part because the sort of stock Christian answer is it's connected to sin. But I don't I don't think we should ever really be too quick to make a a certain sort of assumption on either way. And I think what bothers me most is I don't know. Like I actually I wouldn't be able to predict. Indeed the book doesn't know, right? Like I think one of the most troubling parts of this book is that there is no real answer for why Reagan is chosen, right? I mean, it's a sort of larger problem that theologians try to address, you know, why bad things, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? You yeah. know, like, what what makes bad things happen is not that far of a question from what conjures the devil, right? Yeah, yeah, um, that's true. In a, in a way, this book just forces us to confront our lack of knowledge for that, about that question. Um, And just sort of struggle. To me, we talked earlier about how Blatty wanted this to be a novel about faith. That's the thing that makes it a novel about horror, the lack of answer to that question, right? If Karis is the character who can make this a novel about faith, Reagan is the character who can make this a novel about horror because we cannot figure out what she ever did to invite this this terrible presence in her, right? Yeah. I mean, I think there would be lots of people who would read it and immediately assume it's the Ouija board and certainly Mary Jo has a sense that actually this is something that we don't want to do. And that may well be be true I mean I the last thing I'd be doing is advising people to be going around and messing with that stuff but I don't think that everyone that messes it ends up right in this position it's not like Reagan was the only one in the world of this novel at that moment playing with the Ouija board I mean the mother clearly had she she had it and she she was okay Mm -hmm. and so I think once you really peel back there's just never that simple answer whilst there will be some things that you might want to just not mess around with but I, I just don't think there's a, a very 
there's just not a, a very simple answer to yeah. this. I mean, I feel like when I teach this, when I teach this movie, I end by saying, if you learn nothing else from studying this story with me, don't touch Ouija boards. You know, like, I just, I feel like there are very basic lessons that horror teaches you, right? But, you know, we were talking earlier um, in episode one, I think, about um, all the sort of the ways that a horror sort of conjures the most conservative um, interpretations. You know, I certainly wouldn't think, well, definitely name your, give your child a Christian name, definitely stay together. You know, like, there, are, there are a lot of ways that, you know, you could make claims that the devil is conjured in this book that seem ridiculous, right? And we could, we could turn yeah. into enormously superstitious people, yeah. you know, by, by studiously avoiding everything yeah. that Reagan finds herself falling into by choice or consequence. Absolutely. Right? From and wage boards to divorced parents. Exactly. Yeah. And I think part of the harm the church has done, right, is to give the impression and certainly to... Re- actually probably stronger than that but the idea that if you behave one way this isn't going to happen and if you behave another then it might or society I mean I've never I've never personally heard anyone preach that but you just sort of have this underlying feeling in the cultural waters sometimes of well you know my parents didn't divorce and say therefore you know we even now we talk about a broken home don't we yes yes um my parents didn't divorce, so therefore, if if we're talking, you know, totally safe Reagan terms, yeah. it's all fine. <laughs> Me, on the other hand, big trouble, right? <laughs> it's like we, and yeah. we just know that that's just not yeah. due to real life experience. Yeah. But I think all the time, this goes back to the human propensity to just need an answer. Yeah. Like we just want the answer. So if we create all these safe structures, like if we do this, this will happen. So if it's definitely the Ouija board, yes, we don't do Ouija boards, then we're okay. Um, it's definitely divorce, so we don't... Whilst knowing that actually nothing is ever that simple. Yeah. In a way, I often think, having been raised Catholic, that the creation of ritual is an OCD response to something, right? It is an effort to control something that you cannot control by the use of certain, you know, a certain ritual that you have, Right. Um, a ritual seems like something that we create to fend against um, what we're scared of. And superstitions don't seem that far from me, right? So, like, you know, if I'm, if I'm, if, if the last time I got into a car accident, it was raining, am I never going to drive in the rain again? You know, like, that becomes its own kind of ritual, right? And I think the, the whole point is, to look more carefully at evil, to not see it as something that you can just sort of be superstitious about, that we have to engage with it as as a real adversary. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm now sitting here thinking, what rituals do I like? I, what rituals, are, what, what good rituals are there? I'm thinking at the end of a service, I'll pray a blessing over a congregation. That's a nice ritual, mm-hmm. but it's it's not being created out of... Yeah, that's different, right? That's yeah. not Well, so that's a really good distinction. Rituals meant to uh, addressing a trauma are often Yeah. OCD. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I don't think that there's ever been a story that I can think of outside of scripture that has asked us so urgently to think about evil, not in the abstract 
um, but in the particular, and asked us to, to think about what it means, indeed, to take on the devil. So that seems like a good place to, to end our conversation. Thanks so much for talking. I have loved every minute of it. Thanks to Pam Lack and Patrick Flanagan of the Digital Humanities Center at San Diego State University for technical help. And Phil Cameron of the Language Resource Center at the University of Michigan for arranging studio time. Thanks to Darren Curtis Music for It's in the Fog, the copyright-free music used in this episode. 